All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Science Stories. Today I'm here with Dr. Borja Barbero Bancenilla, who is a postdoctoral researcher on Texas A&M University, and he works on so many projects that I'm going to ask him right now to explain. So he works with the E9 Roses 2022 grant funded by NASA regarding the effects of space radiation on plant genome. He also works with the NASA 2022 SHINE program and the NASA 2023 STAR program. Um, you're also a member of the NASA AWG. So there are many, so many names and acronyms that please, first of all, Dr. Dr. Barbero, should I call you or Dr. Bansenilla? Dr. Barbero is fine. Okay, Dr. Barbero, can you please explain what these projects are, please? Yes, absolutely. First of all, thank you very much for inviting me to talk with you. Looking forward to have a lovely discussion over here. And yes, so basically I'm starting to build like a NASA ecosystem. And you know, NASA, they just love acronyms. You have to use acronyms for everything. So my main affiliation with NASA, it is through a grant, which is the E9 Roses grant, which was given to three major PIs and in which I am the postdoctoral uh, researcher associated with that grant. Uh, I imagine we might talk about it a tiny bit later. And the other two, sorry, three affiliations that you mentioned, NASA Sign, NASA Star. Uh, NASA Sign, it is a program designed by NASA to study <clears throat> the space health impacts. Um, and NASA Star, it is the space flight technology applications and research program that NASA has. So I encourage people to apply for those programs. Every year there is a new set of cohorts that are invited. Uh, for NASA STAR, you need a PhD, but for NASA SIGN, that is still not a requirement to join such a group. And then the NASA EWG, NASA uses a group of different scientists and pulls them into different groups recording according to their expertise. So I am a member of the NASA Plant Science Gene Lab Association. So it's a group of around 100 scientists that they are all involved with NASA space flight or they have experiments going on or they are looking forward to analyze data that is already available regarding plants in space, so to speak. So I'm a member of that group as well. And yeah, so pretty much my day now is just worrying about plants in space and telomeres in space. So you're really, really involved with NASA. How did that happen? It's actually a pretty funny story. So I remember I was here in the lab, in Dr. Dorothy Sippen lab at Texas A&M University. And suddenly she gets to my office, she comes to my office and tells me, I just received the most interesting email from an Argentinian physicist wow. <laughs> called Dr. Roberto Aquilano. Yeah. And he was working on the time about the effect of microgravity on telomeres. Mm -hmm. And he wondered if somebody had looked at plant telomeres in space. That was one year after the famous twin study experiment. So telomeres and space flight was, uh, you know, something that a lot of people were interested in. Sorry, so I, have to, I have to was, kind of stop yes. you right there because you mentioned the twin study and, and this is a like a stepping stone in, in this kind of research, right? It opened a, a, a whole new type of research. If you, can you explain what the, the twin astronaut study was, please? Yes, absolutely. So the twin study experiment, it was a mission in which NASA had 
two twins. They are both astronauts. They are both in the International Space Station. But at that moment, Scott Kelly remained on the International Space Station for a full year while his twin brother remained on Earth. Actually, I think right now Mark Kelly is a senator in Arizona. So anyway, that was used by NASA to see the year-long effect of space flight on humans. There were many interesting results, but one of the ones that was probably the most highlighted was the fact that Scott Kelly's telomeres, which was the twin that was in the International Space Station, got longer compared with his twin brother that remained here on Earth. I know you have had uh, Dr. Buraco here in your in your podcast, and he mentioned perfectly the importance of telomeres. And but just to recap... Yeah, please, very, do, do you mind reminding us again what telomeres are, please? Absolutely. So telomeres are the DNA repeats at the end of the chromosomes that they do not call for protein, and their function is the protection of the whole genetic material. So one very easy way to explain telomeres, it is uh, comparing it with a, with a shoelace. If you look at your shoelace, you have the very, very tip, which is called an aglet, that protects the rest of the shoe. So if you remove that very tip, which is often plastic or fancier shoes, I guess it has a tiny bit of metal at the end. If you remove it, your whole your tip of your shoelace starts to break apart. Mm -hmm. uh, so a similar job is done by telomeres, which uh, they have to protect from the genome losing its integrity. Um, but telomeres, they have been as well known markers of uh, survivability as well as aging in the terms that, that the shorter your telomeres are, the ch higher chances of early senescence you possess. And it has been demonstrated and tested uh, that species with shorter telomeres tend to have a shorter chances of species prosperity. And however, on the other side, you people might be asking, why don't we just have try to make sure that all of our telomeres are long? Yeah. Uh, that would be a problem because a hallmark of cancer cells is that telomeres are long. Oh, okay. Uh, so a lot of cancer cells, they are immortal due to the fact that telomeres do not shorten. So they do not have a limit in the amount of replication that a cell can undergo. So there is a trade-off between the probability of having cancer and the longevity that you can live, apparently. Correct, yes. It's almost like a yin and yang. There yeah. is, you know, you cannot have the telomeres too long because it can lead to cancer cells and you cannot have them too short because, you know, you might die prematurely due to senescence. Yeah. So it needs to be everything in a balance. I guess just like in life, everything needs to be in balance. Yeah. Dr. Barbero, sorry I cut your story of, of how you got to the NASA, but I, I think we needed to explain a little bit. So your no. your boss came and he said, I received this awesome email. And then what happened? How did you end up in NASA? So basically we start, my boss, uh, Dr. Dorothy Sippen, uh, University Distinguished Professor here at a &M, um, she was a postdoc in the lab that discovered telomeres, uh, in the lab of Dr. Elizabeth Blackburn, that later on they got the Nobel Prize for it. So very high pedigree of telomere biology and the world-leading expert in plant telomeres. Uh, so we reach out to NASA, it's like, hey, you have done this experiment in humans. Uh, so now, you know, what about plants? What about other organisms? Yeah. And basically, we were reached out by another um, scientist, Dr. Sarah Wyatt, which she is a plant biologist, an expert space plant biologist. She has been doing, um, taking plants to the International Space Station for quite a long time. Um, 
and she suggested, hey, I am going back to the International Space Station coming up soon. Why don't you guys become part of the team in which, you know, we can look at the telomeres of, of the plants that we're flying in. We're just, they were just flying um, Columbia, which is the most common ecotype of Arabidopsis thaliana. You know, it's like tag along and then you can do your telomere studies once the samples are returned here to, to Earth. And all of this led to uh, the outcome, which was published uh, in November 20 um, of this of the last year, sorry, in Nature Communications, in which we saw that telomere length did not change in plants compared with humans, which in humans, telomeres were elongated uh, when they go to space, and that has been further tested even more times. So plants were able to maintain the telomere at the exact same length compared with the control samples, which it is uh, quite remarkable. Dr. Barbero, let's... Feel free to call me Borja. Okay. Let's do a short break, and then after the break, you tell us all about the results of what you found with the, the telomeres and the telomere race. All right? Absolutely. Fly me to the moon Let me play among the stars And let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars In other words Hold my hand In other words Baby, kiss me Fill my heart with song and let me sing forevermore. You. <laughs> I, I, that caught me by surprise a little bit. So before the break, we were listening to. Fly Me to the Moon by Frank Sinatra, which I think it's a really nice pick, and I think it's pretty obvious why you picked it, but do you have any unobvious reasons why you picked this song? Well, there's two major reasons why I picked this song. First of all, um, I have to say that it, this was the song that I danced with my mom on my wedding date. Oh, wow. You know, the mom-son uh, dance. And the second one, you know, the our last research has been growing plants on um, lunar regolith yeah. and see how they can grow over time and especially look at how their telomeres change um, when they are growing on lunar regolith. Yeah. And what about this? This is the anthem of my soccer team back home in Spain. So obviously, you know, um, it's the team that I actually used to play before coming to the United States to do my undergrad. Uh, so obviously I'm a huge fan, I still follow them. Right now we're in second division in La Liga, so you know, still going through some um, uh, rough times, but you know, <laughs> soccer is one of my passions, so always watching games. And we'll talk about that in the last break. So you, you mentioned that your research was published in Nature Communications last year, which is amazing, congratulations. And one of the findings that you found is that the telomerase activity increased in space, but mm -hmm. the telomere length did not change. How do you explain that? That was a very interesting result that we obtained. 
we have a hypothesis right now regarding that telomerase active telomerase, which is the enzyme that is in charge of adding telomeres at the end of the chromosomes. In humans, um, it has been as well associated beyond having roles in adding telomeres at the end of the chromosomes. It has been known to localize away from the nucleus and in the mitochondria under reactive oxygen species. So under oxidative stress, telomerase translocates to mitochondria and helps dealing with the ROS. Um, that function has not yet been directly tested in Arabidopsis, and the mechanism in humans is still somewhat elusive. However, we do hypothesize that that increased telomerase activity, it is not leading to a telomere length maintenance. However, it could be signif significant of a role of telomerase under oxidative stress in spaceflight. And we overcame that, we came to that conclusion as well because we observed that by making super telomerase Arabidopsis lines, plants that have a higher expression of telomerase, we didn't see changes in telomere length. But what we did see it is the amount of genome oxidation was less in plants that overexpress telomerase. So it looks like what may have been a moonlighting function of telomerase in chromosome, beyond chromosome ends, might be a very important role that telomerase has. That telomerase may be very important to maintain the genome under oxidative stress. Can you please explain what do you mean by genome oxidation? Yes, so one of the major effects that spaceflight has, it is um, increase in oxidative stress. So oxidative stress, it is the effect, it is the presence of reactive oxygen species in an organism. So uh, this is probably due to many different factors, including microgravity and radiation, but oxidative stress and reactive oxygen species can have an effect in, in the genome, meaning that uh, different bases such as guanine can be further modified and oxidized to become uh, an oxidized base. So in the case of guanine, uh, one of the effects of oxidative stress in guanine is that it becomes 8-oxoguanine, which is very common and one of the major markers of genome oxidation. So what we hypothesize is that in space, uh, the increase in oxidative stress, potentially due to radiation, is leading to genome oxidation. And that's exactly what we observe in plants, that they do suffer from genome oxidation. And that's why we think that that increase in genome oxidation is leading to an upregulated telomerase activity that might be helping out under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what a Arabidopsis thailana look like, looks like? Because for you it's really familiar, but when, when you say we send these plants to space, can you, can you help our listeners get a visual image of that? Yes, absolutely. So Arabidopsis thaliana is the model plant um, in for science. Um, it is of a member of the Brassica family. Um, it is a very tiny plant, well, tiny, compared with other ones, that it can grow around up to 30 centimeters. Mm -hmm. um, it has a short lifespan of around a um, month and a half, two months. And, um, and it's the same member of the Brassica family compared with other species like a broccoli, cauliflower. So yes, those two beautiful mm -hmm. crop plants that we all love to eat. Uh, it's not edible itself, Arabidopsis. You could eat it. It tastes terrible. <laughs> so it is not a plant that you want to 
use in your in your salad, so to speak. But yeah. it is the model plant for studies, mostly due that there's a big uh, library of mutations that people study. So the way it often works, people often are interested in a gene, and then they find these mutations in Arabidopsis and uh, try to associate it to a function in other crop plants. So it's basically the mice of the plant world. Mm -hmm. Did you see any differences in the way the plants looked between the ones that you sent to the space and the ones that stay here? So I know you studied a lot of the genes and the, and the genome activity and oxidation and all that, but could you see any physical differences that to the naked eye you could tell? Oh, when you receive the pictures and when you receive the place of the plants that were grown on the International Space Station, the first thing that you see is that the roots are all over the place. Right, because the plants are growing in microgravity conditions, right? So the root doesn't know what's up, what's down, what's what. So it just follows light. Uh, so the roots are all over the place. Other than that, in terms of biomass of the plant, there wasn't a huge, there's not a huge difference mm -hmm. between the control and the plants that were aboard the International Space Station. But you know, the roots are all over the place. So to do the dissections, you you're having a heart attack, you know, because in this case we were trying to dissect out roots versus shoots in Arabiopsis italiana and when the roots are all over the place it makes it very hard to dissect but uh, at plain sight the plants are growing um, well they have a similar biomass uh, they do sap they are stressed but it's not leading to a huge hindering in growth are they able to reproduce in space Uh, so there has been many groups that they have been able to collect seeds and it has led to even a second generation growth. So seed to seed studies in the International Space Station, they are not that common yet, mm -hmm. but there has been many groups that are working on it now. What I love about this study is that, so you, you found a correlation between going to space and telomerase activity and, and not a correlation between telomere length, right? And so you have a, a correlation which in the end, if you think about it, it's just a hypothesis because it's just a correlation. Yeah. What I like about your study is that it's so complete that once you have this hypothesis that was generated by sending plants to space, you did experiments to confirm that here on Earth. You, you know what I'm talking about? The, the, um... Absolutely, absolutely. So and that was ex exactly one of the strengths. We actually, you know, we were working in this manuscript for over a year and... Um, we obviously reached for a high impact factor journal and without the addition of the ground studies uh, we did not get the significance that we were looking for so it took uh, besides going to the international space station to study this it took then another group of very talented scientists to figure out exactly a mechanism of why this is happening and why this is important but uh, again the i think what we had to go to space to maybe understand that telomerase has other roles beyond chromosome end maintenance. So it was a, a very unique scenario to, to find that out. Yeah, indeed. What a... So some people just read papers and come up with a hypothesis. You send stuff to the moon and you come up with a hypothesis. Yes, exactly. <laughs> How cool is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so have you been to NASA, to, to some headquarters from NASA? So when whenever you are prepping for the flight, you have to go multiple times uh, to NASA. So in our case, we go to Kennedy uh, Space Center because that is where the, the experiments launch from. So is that NASA, in Houston? 
No, Kennedy is in Florida, Cape Canaveral. Oh, okay. Yeah. So all of our work is done at, at, at Cape Canaveral. So the first time I went over there, it was uh, I tag along with Dr. Alexander Mayer and Dr. Sarah Wyatt, uh, that they were the, uh, the principal um, researchers for what was the Apex 07 study that eventually led to the telomere work. But the first time I went there, they picked me up. You get your badge, you know, after uh, many paperwork here and there. And then, you know, you go through security and then you drive around Kennedy. And uh, it was one of the best experiences of my life. It was awesome. Just driving around and seeing all of the launch pads that they are historic in the terms of space history. Uh, it was awesome and great experience. And I think it really, you know, touched me that trip that, uh, it's something that, wow, I really want to keep doing this. So coming up, we have another flight. Um, hopefully, uh, by the end of this year, maybe beginning of the next one. And um, NASA makes sure that, you know, you're ready for that experiment, ready to launch. So you have to do what is called the experimental verification test, the science verification test. So we're going to have to go around four or five different times to NASA before we launch our next experiment. So, but I loved it. It's going to Kennedy if... If you have the opportunity and as well see a launch live, it is one of the best experiences I ever had. Did you get a chance to speak to one of the astronauts that was taking your plans to space? So, actually, not directly speaking, but we were on a Zoom call while the astronauts were <laughs> working on the plans, right? So, you, this was it was awesome because I got invited by the lead scientists, Dr. Mayer and Dr. Wyatt. Hey, do you want to just attend the Zoom call? You know, where having a Zoom call with the astronaut while he's picking up the plants, just in case something happens. And they need to ask like a last minute question or something. And, you know, they just, uh, you just see them work for two and a half hours. So the person that collected our, uh, the plants of Apex 07 was Mark Van de Heide, which until very recently, he was the person that had been the longest wow. in, in space. So we were very, very lucky with that. And, you know, he made a very nice tweet saying it was an awesome experience being for over a year in the International Space Station. And he used the picture where he's collecting our our plants. So, so um, you had a Zoom to an astronaut in space. Right, yes. <laughs> That's amazing, right? It's, it's mind-blowing. It is absolutely mind-blowing. And, you know, the fact that th those people, man, they are, they are really rock stars. Yeah. Um, after these experiments, they have prep another three or four experiments in the day. And then the day after, they have to do an EVA and fix the International Space Station. So, you know, when we complain about doing experiments on a day, just think that after that, they have to do many more. And then tomorrow, they have to go outside, walk in space and fix uh, fix the International Space Station. Do, so it was awesome. Do you think the astronauts are like, oh, come on, another experiment I have to do? Or, or is it like, okay, I love doing this. This is something different from taking care of the ship all day or something. You know what I mean? Like, I'm an astronaut. Let me do my astronaut thing. I don't want to be looking after plants, you know? So let me tell you something. Most of the astronauts that are in the International Space Station, they always mention that they love working on plant experiments. Because if you think about it, you are on a building that, you know, uh, is just full of machinery. Mm -hmm. And then seeing something that reminds you of your garden, mm -hmm. it is uh, fulfilling, right? And as well, there's a lot of different plant experiments that they grow tomatoes and peppers, and they have they have eaten some of those tomatoes <laughs> and peppers, right? So 
uh, you know, it's like a win-win, I guess, scenario yeah, for them. I imagine. It, you, raise, you raise a very important point, and, you know, in long-term missions, uh, plans are going to be necessary, not only for the fact that they give food, but as well for mental health purposes. You know, mm -hmm. having uh, the daily care of plants can be therapeutic for many people. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Uh, Borja, you mentioned microgravity. What, is there a difference between microgravity and no gravity at all? I am not a physicist, yes. but if you say no gravity, physicists in NASA get very upset. Okay. Uh, so the, cor the correct term is microgravity because I guess there is still some water okay, okay. gravity if it's 0. 0.000 okay. whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's referred correctly as microgravity, but I, I used to say lack of gravity until somebody told me mm -hmm. do not say, okay, I see. say I microgravity. See. So how does it work with the plants? Are they just floating around in, this, in the International Earth Space Station or what? So we use a hardware called Veggie that has is a advanced hardware to grow plants. Mm -hmm. uh, there's now different hardwares that are, have been used in the International Space Station that are able to harbor plants. So our plants, they were grown on pretty much a petri dish that has all the nutrients that the plants need to grow for around 12 days. And then after that, our plants were frozen and sent back here to Texas A&M where we did the telomere studies or Ohio University or NC State where they did other experiments. But they are grown on hardwares that they have control of light. Some of them control carbon dioxide and even uh, in some cases, some watering conditions. But um, yeah, so we use the veggie hardware. And prior to us, there was another experiment by a very famous uh, scientist called Simon Gilroy, uh, University of Madison, Wisconsin, which he grew cotton. Mm -hmm. uh, so prior to us, there was cotton. After us, I believe they were starting to grow peppers. So it is a hardware that is used to grow uh, different uh, crops and plants. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. yeah, and and you mentioned that being in the in being in space is stressful because there is radiation even inside the the International Space Station and within this hardware that you use to grow plants, they are still exposed to this radiation? So in the the International Space Station is still in low Earth orbit, so it's protected uh, mostly by the magnetosphere. However, uh, there's still the effects of radiation. I think on a daily basis is around 0.4 microgram. Uh, however, there are there is an event called the South Atlantic Anomaly in which the magnetos... Uh, I'm not physicist, so if I say something wrong, people, please don't hate me. The <laughs> magnetosphere is not constant. And there's a part right above Brazil, which is the South Atlantic anomaly, in which most of the radiation occurs. So it is a part of the magnetosphere that the ISS crosses. Uh, however, there is a decrease in the magnetosphere there and a lot of the radiation uh, damage that happens. It is when the ISS crosses through this South Atlantic anomaly. And you have to think that the ISS goes around the Earth every 90 minutes because it yeah. goes a thousand miles an hour. So every 90 minutes, you see spikes in radiation and happening. Wow. Wow. It's so interesting. Everything related to space is so interesting, right? It makes everything, any experiment so much sexier, right? Oh, trust me. You know, like I'm, I feel very blessed that now we are working with many different space projects. And actually, talking about radiation, we are going very soon to Brookhaven National Laboratory, which is run by the U.S. Department of Energy, and is the only place 
uh, in the world that can mimic what is called galactic cosmic ray simulators. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to be heating our plants in 30 minutes to the amount of radiation that they will experience in six months in the International Space Station. Wow. And this, um, all, it was an, it's another awesome experience that I, I'm very happy that I get to um, be a part of. But we're still trying to understand how plants adapt to uh, radiation beyond low Earth orbit. Because now with the Artemis missions, plants are going to be uh, very subjective to the damages of radiation, especially because the moon has no, you know, no shielding from that. So now we really need to understand if plants are going to be long lasting uh, under the constant damage of space radiation. Do you, what do you think it's gonna happen? Well, I think uh, we have been working on plants growing on regolith. We have been plants working in plants on the radiation. So far what we've, me and others, what we have found out is that plants are one of the toughest uh, organisms that we know. Uh, think about it. When we put our hand on on the stove, mm -hmm. our immediate reaction is to remove it. Yeah. But plants cannot just suddenly leave. They cannot walk. They have to deal molecularly with every single damage. So that was one of the bigger, um, not bigger surprises, but bigger take-home message from the experiments done in the International Space Station, what our genome loses quite a bit of integrity and suffers changes in telomere length, meaning that uh, there is a misregulation of the genomic material. Plants didn't seem to have that much of an effect, meaning that they're probably more adapted to deal with the damaging and stressful conditions better than us. So I do think plants, we will find a way or we will have to genetically engineer to be able to withstand all of these long conditions. But if I had to bet for our organism to be able to survive these extreme conditions, plants will be one of them, besides yeah. tardigrades. Tardigrades, wow. they can survive a lot of things, but plants will um, will probably make it, and we need them to make it if we are to become a multiplanetary species. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely, definitely, for sure. Borja, let's do our last break, and then we come back, and I want to ask you about... You've been a speaker in really important forums. And I also want to ask you a little bit about your soccer career. Sounds good. So right now we're listening to DJ Tiesto, uh, Adagio for Strings. Is, why did you pick that song? So um, it's actually one of my favorite songs when I was younger. 
and I used to work as a DJ. I think that's something that not many people know. Wow. <laughs> I was uh, 16 years old, you know, fresh off to the, um, you know, to the job market. One of my first jobs was actually to be a DJ for a for a club back in my city. And, you know, it's one of my favorite songs when back then. I still do listen to electronic music, not as often as back in the days, but yeah. Nice. Where is your city? Valladolid. Valladolid. So it's the, uh, yep, that is We've... my city. It's uh, around two hours north from Madrid, uh, center north of Spain. Mm -hmm. And before the break, we were listening to, of course, the Star Wars main theme. It's created by John Williams and London. I mean, do you want to say why you picked that song or is it pretty... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's pretty, pretty self-explanatory, yeah. first of all. <laughs> What a, what a change from one song to the other, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Star Wars fan. Actually, my two dogs, they are named Leia and Ray. Wow. Uh, my wife said, you can name the dogs Star Wars stuff. Uh, but, you know, stay away from the kids' names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Star Wars fan. Yep. Yeah, by the way, congratulations on just having a kid. Thank you very much. Do you mind sharing her name? Yes, absolutely. Athena. She's the goddess of intelligence and war. Uh, so far, she has been uh, pretty feisty. No, I'm kidding. She has been, <laughs> she has been wonderful. So. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, it's a beautiful thank name. You, thank too. you. Thank so, Borja, you, you as a scientist, you have a lot of experience talking to other scientists. But you've also spoken to, for example, you also spoken in the United Nations General Assembly Science Summit. It sounds like so such a great name. And you also talked in the Mediterranean Space Forum. Do you how do you face these big instances? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, I do love talking. I do love talking about science. It's something that I think I feel pretty confident at doing. And it's something as scientists, you know, uh, you and me, that we need to start doing a better job of communicating perhaps complex topics into uh, everyday person and make them understand why is it important to spend a lot of money to study certain uh, scientific topics. Um, so speaking at the UN General Science Summit, it was actually it was a tough job just because I spoke after somebody that was showing pictures of the James Webb telescope. Wow. Uh, so. Talking after somebody that shows pictures <laughs> of the universe uh, 15 billion years away, and then you go and talk about plants in space, you know, <laughs> the, 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 the impact is a tiny bit lost there. But still, I, I think, I hope I was able to convey the importance of studying plants' uh, long lasting effect in, in space. And the Mediterranean space for me was actually a pretty, pretty good opportunity to come from an academic background. I was speaking with people working at ESA, people working at different industry in the space sector in, in the Mediterranean. And I was more of the academic um, setting of why is it important for different countries uh, surrounding the Mediterranean, why they should keep investing in, in space-related technologies. Mm -hmm. Borja, is it true that you might be a little bit of a star back home? I don't know if you're a star or not, but... They did a special spot on you on a local TV channel. Is is that true? Yeah. So my city, first of all, Valladolid, uh, I miss it a lot. It is uh, three, around 300,000 people. So you wouldn't say it's a, 
is a big city. And prior to that, I was playing on the on the on the soccer team of the city, so to speak, until I came here to the United States um, to to study. Um, so I have been on the local newspaper for many reasons, ranging from soccer all the way now to to NASA scientists and the path in in between. Um, I am very happy to be from where I'm from, and um, I just hope that I can keep hopefully motivating people from my city to pursue uh, perhaps now a career in science. Uh, but yeah. Do people... I wouldn't say I'm a superstar, though. Superstars are, you know, others in my city. Does anybody recognize you when you go there, like random people or not? Uh, I don't know about random people, but I'm lucky to have many, many good friends back home. So, you know, I was, I guess, uh, always popular around my city. So, you know, you get to know everybody. And it's a, it's a pretty nice, um, tight community. So, you know, you eventually know a big number. My dad, he used to be in the Chamber of Commerce of Valladolid, and he's the person that, you know, we go to the pharmacy, which is five minutes walking, and it takes around one hour just because <laughs> everybody's starting to say hi to him, you know, so it's uh, it's quite an interesting adventure. But, you know, I haven't been home since my wedding, which was in 2022. So now that I got my, um, you know, my paperwork figured out here, I'm very looking forward to go back home and to bring my daughter as well. Nice, nice. You said you've been in the newspaper because of soccer and because of being a scientist and working with the NASA. Honestly, which one made you prouder? <laughs> I think at the moment, probably at the moment, each of them, you know, but right now looking back, uh, obviously, you know, working with space related projects is something I never envisioned, not even when I started my PhD, you know. I didn't know where any of this will eventually go. Um, but it really makes me proud to now be perhaps known as the 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 the, the Spanish person from Valladolid that is working uh, with NASA on sending plants to space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, soccer has been a big part of your life. You were once a professional soccer player in Spain. That kind of didn't work out completely. So that brought you to the U.S. So you got a scholarship to come and study in the U.S. because of, of soccer. And then you kept playing during your PhD. I, I, I know that for a fact. Do you still play now? So um, as you were saying, you're correct. I, I played in Ravelli Youth Academy since I was nine until I was 17, which is when I decided I had two routes. I either stayed in Valladolid and play on Valladolid's B team, which right now is on the league considered professional in Spain, like in the mix between professional and semi-professional. <clears throat> the only problem is that, you know, I wanted as well to go to university just because uh, nothing is secure when you are just starting in soccer. Your knee yeah. breaks, you're done, you have no career. And if I miss any exam uh, in Spain due to soccer-related activities like training, I will get an absolute zero on yeah. my grade and on my exam. So the option appeared to come here to the U.S. and play and get a full scholarship to play soccer in the U.S. And I went to Iona College, small D1 in New York, and then transferred to University of Delaware, um, another D1 um, college. And then after that, I played during my PhD uh, on the Texas A&M club soccer team. Um, I could only play for two years because there's a 
very a rule that I find very I'm going to say the word stupid. I don't know if this is correct or not, but you can only play four years of NCAA soccer and then two years of club. And after that, they don't give you any more eligibility. Um, and at that moment, I, I I felt still that I wanted to keep playing. And the two years at the club soccer team, I was doing my PhD, as you were saying. And I played um, with the Houston Dynamo USL team for around a couple months. And on my second game, I started feeling something funny on my growing. Like, it's like I'm hitting the ball and it's, it just hurts. It just mm. hurts. It doesn't go away. And then soon, sooner than later, I found out that I had an hernia. Oh. So I had to pass either surgery and recovery or, you know, let it go and and heal by itself after a long period of time. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm done. That's yeah. it. And and that's when I started coaching. So now I look, I coach on a local club here. I coach um, younger kids and not so young kids. Now I coach the UPSL team here in town, which is made of uh, former uh, professional players, players that are going to college players are going to high school so a tiny bit of mix of everything it is have players of 33 years old combined with 15 years old so you know your your speech has to be tailored to everybody but yeah i do coach soccer just because i something that i need after going to lab i do need some sort of soccer yes otherwise i will go crazy like similar mm -hmm. as you like if you don't play a sport i imagine you will suffer as well oh yeah from, you know, Borja, where were you in 2010 when spain was world champion for the first time oh man i was actually that day i was on a camp in england trying to learn english wow but i was in a camp in england trying to learn english and then the moment i knew it was the spain reached the world cup i started gathering with spanish people in england to celebrate it so i went to england to learn english and i just gathered with spanish to celebrate spain winning <laughs> the world cup <laughs> nice and Borja, last question and no offense, okay? I'm just asking. Don't kill the messenger. What do you say to the people that say that all goalkeepers are crazy? Well, you know, there was a paper actually here. I want to use science to explain some of this. There was a paper uh, Kami, uh, uh, some time ago. I don't recall what journal, but new scientists made, it, uh, um, made a post about it in which it says that the goalkeeper mind it is different from other players due to anticipation. So there is more mental uh, processes going on the minds of goalkeepers compared with the rest of the players. Uh, so I do think, you know, taking that away, that goalkeepers, we need to be different from other players. And sometimes that translates into as being a tiny bit on the crazy side. Uh, <laughs> I can assess that I was very intense as well. So I do see some of that, but I do think as well, that being a goalkeeper definitely has more of a, a brain work happening than compared with the rest of the players. So yeah, 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 it's it's a tough position to be in because you make one mistake and that might cost the game, right? Oh, absolutely, you are the hero or you are the, the villain. Worst. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. true. Borja, thank you so much for this time. I know you just have a, a newborn, so I don't want to take more time from you. Thank you so much. Did you have a good time? Oh, I had a great time, my friend. This was this was awesome. I've been uh, listening to your more recent work, and man, it has yeah, actually I'm enjoying it quite a lot. So, first of all, thank you for doing this. It is great for scientists to see many different aspects of research and the way 
you present it, the way you work it out makes it very enjoyable. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, so much. Wow.